The reading this morning is from Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. And in the Blue Pew Bible, that can be found on page 983. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. And Steve mentioned during his prayer that we would uh, slow down. And this is a great time for everybody to slow down, um, not be distracted. Uh, Let's give ear, for this is the very word of God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we are encouraged as the head of the body, the church, that you will supply all that we need as your people. You will continue to minister to us by your grace through the preaching and teaching of your word, through our own devotional lives, through our own interaction one with another, through the very difficulties that we face every day that you in all things will be continually forming us into your gracious image, liberating us from our sin and using us as instruments in your hand to bring good to this dark world. We, Lord, give ourselves up to you even now, recognizing that apart from you we can do no good. We, we will not have a good reaction to your word. We will not have... Uh, any regard for it. We will not fold it into our lives. We will not change our thinking. We won't change our desires. We'll do nothing with it, Lord, apart from your grace. So we pray, uh, pour out your Holy Spirit upon us uh, that we can be uh, truly transformed by your word. We ask this for your glory and honor. Amen. I think everyone was uh, handed out uh, two sheets front and back. Is this correct? Uh, we're not handed out sheets for okay. Uh, I think they were printed uh, with the. My, I'm I'm sorry, I don't know. Um, <clears throat> what a great way to start! I love that. <laughs> um, it reminds me. I was uh, there, there's a anyway. I'm going to tell you about the sheets because we're not going to spend any time on the sheets, um, but. They have uh, an outline of the whole passage, verses 15 through 20, and it shows the poetic uh, structure of the passage, okay? Shows the, or whatever part of poem and prose is there, you can see there's a beautiful structure, uh, and that's why it's been called a hymn many times uh, that either Paul adapted or uh, adopted or adapted. or composed himself. There's a lot of disagreement as to uh, what verses 15 through 20 are. But whatever it is, uh, it's certainly beautiful in its structure. And so I've, I've given you that 
on the first page so that you can do your own uh, research and and just worship God and uh, through that and, and see how beautiful the passage is. Then uh, on the second page, the back of that page, is our outline for this morning. And then the, the, the last two pages that are attached are just a review of last week. Uh, I think it was a little bit thick and maybe confused in some of the teaching, and so I, ho- I hope that will help you uh, to review what we dealt with last week. And that's free. That's free. I throw that in. Uh, you don't, you're not charged anymore. Which reminds me, when Kay and I were, uh, years ago, we had the opportunity to go to uh, Rhode Island. And we were in a very neat little country home that's 300 years old. It was a really wonderful situation. And down the road, we met another fella uh, who, he lived there. And, and this guy sold piano keys in Europe. And uh, he, he was totally uh, had no understanding of Christianity, which is fine, uh, had a certain concept of what went on in the church. And so uh, he was talking about these piano keys that he made actually from calf femurs, right? Okay. Uh, that's a little thing to tuck away. Um, so uh, he said, you know, but I have a, a, a problem with the money flow because I need to get to Europe to sell my keys to make money, but I need money to get to Europe. He said, it's really a cash flow issue. He says, it's, it's kind of like what you do. You stand up and talk, and if people like it, they give you money. <laughs> so, I'm just saying this is free. What I handed out is free. You don't have to, you're not charged by that. <laughs> that would not be good if I was paid, if people like it always. <clears throat> um, so, on the second page, you see uh, five basic points that uh, outline verses 18 through uh, 20. And we're going to just dive into that. Uh, first of all, uh, this phrase in uh, verse 18, He is the head of the body, the church. And I've titled that as Lord. Uh, it is another way to say He's head of the body is another way to say He is Lord of the church because in the ancient world, the head was considered to be the governing member of the body. And also, not only that part of the body that controlled the rest of the body, but also provides life and sustenance for the body. So this has to do with his lordship, but it also has to do with his life. And the fact that the church is called his body shows that Christ is viewed as a corporate person, in a sense. That we, He contains all those who belong to Him. That we are found in Him. We are a part of Him spiritually, so we are called His body. You get the intensity of this in Ephesians 5 when He says, He nourishes and cherishes us because we're His body. That's a reality. That's why he so nourishes and cherishes you. You are a part of him. You are his body. It's glorious. It's amazing that he's united us to himself in that way. And so as our head or Lord, is he is our shelter as Lord. He's our protection. He's our strength. As our Lord, he governs us by his word giving us sure promises, giving us gracious commands. 
And wonderfully, this Lord, who is our head, actually sacrifices his, Himself for His people. And so, you and I, just from this statement that He is the head of the body, we must receive Him as Lord in the fullest sense. We receive Him not only as our Lord who will shelter us and protect us and supply us and keep us, but we receive Him as Lord who will teach us and command us. And though we will never give perfect submission to His Lordship, there must be this fundamental desire and sincere desire to give ourselves into the gracious hands of this Lord who has died for us. The very recognition of His greatness and goodness in dying for us causes us to want to put ourselves in His hands. If we begin to see His greatness, how can we not begin to want to be under His care as our Lord? And therefore, under the care of His Word, under the care of His commands... And this does hit home personally when we realize that to make our own choices against His Word is rebellion against this gracious Lordship. It helps us to see the evil of sin in this regard, that it is holding our, our fists up in, in the face of this kind King who gave Himself for us. It helps us to see the evil of sin and the madness of sin, the destructiveness of sin that we would go against this gracious Lord. And just to one more thing about this, submission to His Lordship, submission to the one who's head of the body, means submission to His Word always. can't even talk about Lordship apart from thinking about His Word that commands us as Lord. So it means hearing that word and reading and studying that word. It means meditating on that word, discussing that word, putting that word into our hearts, making it the whole basis of our life. So as Paul says in Colossians 3, in this very letter, verse 16, let the word of Christ richly dwell in your life. Let it spread out. Let it have full uh, hold of every part of your life. And I would just encourage you, enjoy His rich and wonderful Lordship by letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. How else will you enjoy this Lordship unless you let His Word dwell in you richly? So He is Lord. He is head of the church. We've already talked a little bit about how this means that he's our life and and that gets more specific as we go to the next phrases he is the beginning the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent so he is the beginning and the firstborn this speaks especially of how he is our life and this word beginning doesn't capture all the richness of the original word in fact you wouldn't know it, but it's from the same word that we get rulers in verse 16. Okay? Same word from which we get rulers in verse 16. And so, a, a good way to put it is to say, he's the impacting source of everything. Okay? Or, or he's the influencing cause, 
the fountain or the wellspring of the new people of God. He brings everything into being in the new creation. So he's the beginning in that rich sense. And that's further explained by saying he's the beginning, that is, the firstborn from the dead. This points directly to the resurrection. And it doesn't mean simply that he's the first one resurrected, okay? But it means that he is the firstborn of all those that will be born, the first of many that will be resurrected. The assumption is first of many, right? They're to be included in this. He is, you might say, the fountainhead of resurrection. We all hang on his belt, in a sense. We are encompassed in him. We have our resurrection in him. Because he is resurrected, we will be resurrected. Firstborn from the dead. And it's like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 when he calls Christ the firstfruits. And you know, firstfruits are an indication that the whole of the harvest is coming. It's just the first of the harvest, but it's a symbol. It's a guarantee. The whole harvest is on its way. We have the first fruits. The first fruits aren't, oh, this is all we got. No, it's the symbol of everything. And that's why there's rejoicing in the beginning of the harvest. And Jesus is described in that way. He's just the beginning of the harvest. You are part of that harvest. You are part of that resurrection. And so, in your prayers, I would urge you, address Christ in these terms. Oh Lord, you are the beginning. You are the firstborn from the dead. Let that be your thought about Him, who He is, and what He is to you. Realizing, even as you pray, oh Lord, you're the guarantee that I will be raised one day. This brings hope in your life to constantly address Him in a way that reminds you, you are my resurrection, you are my hope. I, have, I can live in that hope today. That can be the context of everything I do today. I'm so united to Christ that what happens to Christ must and will happen to me. He was raised so that you can be raised. His resurrection is your resurrection. I love what Peter says in his sermon in Acts chapter 3. He says he's the author of life. See, his resurrection wasn't just for him. In fact, it wasn't mainly for him. It was accomplished for you. So he is the firstborn from the dead. Uh, Lucas says this, that the church is the company of those who share the risen life of Christ. That's who you are. You're the company of the people that share the risen life of Christ that will finally have as its culmination your own personal bodily resurrection along with Christ. But notice it says he's the beginning, the firstborn, that in everything he might be preeminent. And so we come to that word supreme in the outline, uh, Lord in life and supreme. This is a a purpose clause. In other words, he's the firstborn. He was resurrected so that he would be preeminent. 
There's a preeminence right now in Christ's ruling over all things and Lord over all things, but there's a sense in which that preeminence has not fully manifested itself. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews chapter 2 to say, we, have not, we don't see everything subject to him. Now he's talking about man here, but he says the one thing we do see is Christ crowned with glory and honor. Okay? So we don't see the subjection of all things, but we do see him crowned with glory and honor. The beginning of it is there. The, the initiative uh, or the initial act of all things being uh, brought under his lordship is there because he's crowned with glory and honor. He is on the throne. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ must reign until he's put all of his enemies under his feet. And in that day he will be fully, completely preeminent in the world because all of his enemies, every power, every bit of pride that rises up against God and rises up against Christ will be taken out. So that's the negative, defeating all power that opposes him. And then you're many of you familiar with the positive side of that in Philippians 2 where he says... Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So in terms of the negative, that all opposing authority will be destroyed and that every single uh, knee will bow and acknowledge Him as Lord, that shows you He was resurrected from the dead so that ultimately and finally He will be preeminent over everything. Absolutely preeminent over all things. And so... All of creation is to be brought under the rule of Jesus Christ. It's the whole goal of creation. It's the whole goal of redemption is this preeminence of Christ. And again, for us, it calls us, doesn't it, to rejoice in that preeminence, rejoice that nothing can interfere with His blessings to His people because He is Lord, and to realize there is this wonderful goal in, in all of history, no matter what confusion or danger or destruction that we see around us, we are headed to that goal. The resurrection means this preeminence. As sure as the resurrection has occurred, there will be this glorious final preeminence with Christ. And doesn't it say all the more, attach yourselves to this Christ. Fold yourself within this Christ. Trust this Christ. Have this Christ as your Lord because everything outside of this Christ is in rebellion against Him and will be taken away. It is those who belong to Him and only those that belong to Him just like those who were on the ark and only those in the ark were safe in that destruction. He is to be preeminent. Don't stand against this one who is headed for the kingship, who is king and will be made absolute king. How how terrible for me if I would rise in rebellion against this one who has graciously given himself to die for his people and because of that death has been made preeminent over all things. And I want to just mention one other thing about this because... 
you think about how God has been preeminent always, how, how can it say that because of the resurrection, he's preeminent? That almost, it, it doesn't feel right in, in some ways to us, that because of the resurrection, this God is now preeminent. And I would liken it to uh, that final scene in Willy Wonka, which is one of my favorite scenes in, in a movie. It's when they're in the Wonkavator, right? They're in the Wonkavator, and the Wonkavator starts going up, and it just keeps going, keeps going, and finally just shatters the top of the building as he floats over all the many works of Willy, the Wonka, uh, Willy Wonka Chocolate Factory, and he finally tells him, oh, this is yours, right? Great little scene. Go see it, Wonka Vader. Um, But in a sense, you might say that every vision, every understanding of God in the death and resurrection of Christ was just shattered. It was blown beyond anything anybody could imagine. That the death and resurrection of Christ burst forth with such glory that God's magnificence is blazed forth in this boundless beauty that had never before been seen, that a God would do this for His people. Who could imagine it? A God would die for His people. A God would be raised in His flesh for those people to give them the kingdom that they abandoned on their own. And so there is this sense that God has entered into His greatest preeminence by the resurrection, the greatest display of His glory. Not that He was ever anything different, but now His greatness is shown forth as it had never been before. And so He's the firstborn from the dead that He might be worshipped, that He might be lifted up as never before, that He might be recognized as never before, acknowledged and honored and praised as never before that He might be preeminent in our lives. And brothers and sisters, that we get to live in the wake of that is the best of times. It's the best of times in history that we get, get to live in the light of the death and resurrection of Jesus and the, ma- the magnificent display of who God is in Christ Well, there's this big four in verse 19. He is the beginning and the firstborn because, because in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Actually, in the original, just so you know, the word God is not found there. It it literally reads, so all the fullness... uh, was pleased to dwell in him. But it's a good understanding of it that this is a shorthand for God in all his fullness was pleased to dwell in Christ. God in all his fullness. And so it means that and the verb that he was pleased to take up permanent residence in Christ. And notice he did not indwell Christ reluctantly, the Son of God. God did not dwell in the man Christ Jesus reluctantly. He was pleased to do this. It means He chose to do this. This is the fulfillment of His long purpose 
Nobody was holding his, him to it. Uh, he delighted to do this for his people, to dwell in the man Christ Jesus and to take their sins upon himself and to reconcile all things to himself. And this is glorious because in the history of God's people, he always dwelled with his people, right? In the Old Testament, he dwells in the big middle tent we call tabernacle. That's just a word for tent in the original. And then when they move into permanent residences in Israel, he moves into a permanent residence in the temple, always manifesting himself as living right in the midst of his people. And that's what verse 19 is about. The fullness of God dwells in the person of Christ. And that's why Christ can refer to himself as the temple in John chapter 2. The new tabernacle, the new temple, the new dwelling place of God. And what Paul is saying here is when you have Christ, you have all of God. There's nothing outside of Christ, no other part of God, some aspect of God that you get in addition to Christ. And that's probably uh, anticipating some of the problems that were being faced in Colossians, that there are things to add to Christ or get beside Christ that really gets you into God. And Paul is teaching that there is nothing in God that is not in Christ. All of the divine action, all of the divine capacity is found in Him. There's nothing more of God that you will find outside of Christ. All the fullness. And so when you have Christ, you have all that God is. Lucas puts it this way, God does not possess anything beyond Christ to give to His people. Our dog, Chap... uh, Growing up, would sit at our table, and we kids were bad to feed him, you know. But sometimes we didn't have anything but say just vegetables on the. And so I would throw a bean down, and he would lean over, and I love the way a dog, as he's sniffing, it's almost like he wants to blow that smell out of his mouth, you know. <laughs> he just blows out, and so Chap would do that, and then he would still look up and say, "What you got?" And say, "Look, that's all I got," you know. It's beans, buddy. That's all it is. If you don't like beans, you don't, you don't like what I have. And, and God is saying to us, there is nothing else I give you but Christ. In Him you have everything. This is our comfort. This is our glory. That all can, that can be known about God, all that can be experienced of God is to be found in Christ Jesus. And so to reject Christ is to reject God Himself as manifested in Christ. And to look for God outside of Christ is to look in clearly the wrong place because He is in Christ Jesus. All the riches you need to take you through every circumstance are to be found in Christ Jesus. All you need for life and death are found in Christ Jesus. He is the unending treasure where you find all the wealth of God Himself. It is in Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that He doesn't give you Himself in His people. It doesn't mean that you don't need anybody but but Jesus in that sense because He purposely meets our need and spreads His grace throughout His people so that He benefits us in so many ways. But He is the ultimate treasure. And then finally, we see 
uh, He is not only sufficient, not only sovereign, Lord in, in, in life, but He is the restorer. It says, Through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Now, in the first place, as we've indicated in our worship, this means that there will be reconciliation of all relationships in amongst God's people. All relationships. And right now, by God's grace, there is already that reconciliation. There is the bringing together of all kinds of people, and people of different races and people of different socioeconomic class uh, he, he draws us together and joins us together. We, we love the same things in Christ. We have the same trust. We have the same recognition of our need of Christ. But we also see that this unity and this peace, this wholeness is frayed around the edges. Sometimes there are rips and tears in it. We see it terribly in the church in history. We see it in many places in the world. We can see it in places in our own body as there are struggles with relationships within our own body. And within families themselves, there are great struggles. Isn't it amazing that in that final day, all relationships will be perfectly reconciled? Everyone from there on out will have a perfect relationship of entering into each other's lives and delighting one another and nurturing one another and nourishing one another forever and only that forever that's part of the reconciliation of all things but it's strange when you begin to think of all things in the universe which he is applying this to especially because he says the blood of the cross reconciles all things. This is a little unusual at at a first read because the blood of the cross has to do in the first place with Christ dying in our place. Blood represents a, a life sacrificed for us, bearing our punishment in our place bearing that punishment so we don't have to suffer that punishment, reconciling us to God so that we can be embraced and loved by God as His children. And it has to do with our sins. And we have peace and wholeness with God. But what does it have to do with creation? Why why would the blood be applied in this way to creation itself? Creation didn't sin against God. Now, I would like for you, we'll close with, is that a sign? Is that the sign to uh, some elder or deacon? Time up. Okay. Okay. Well, just give me a minute here. Um, On page 944, if you want to take your pew Bible, if you don't know where Romans is, but Romans chapter 8, I would like for us to look back. And I think this passage helps us to understand something of what Paul means here when he says all things will be reconciled through uh, the blood of the cross. I want you to read first with me verse 19 uh, of chapter 8. It says, Creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. 
So creation waits for our revealing. That means our resurrection. All creation is waiting for the day that we get new bodies of glory and power that are fully reconditioned by the Holy Spirit. Okay, That's what the creation is waiting for. Now, let me give you an analogy. Children would not eagerly be waiting for their daddy to come home. Daddy, that's what we say in Alabama. Their daddy to come home when he uh been on a long trip. Uh, they wouldn't be eager if all that happens when daddy came home, in fact, nothing happened. He didn't say hi to them. He didn't see them. They didn't see him. He goes back to the house he lives in the back. They never see any evidence of dad whatsoever. It doesn't matter if he's there or not. They're not going to be eagerly waiting for dad unless there's this slight sense that maybe dad will protect us, whatever, right? But there's nothing. But what if when daddy came home, it meant that all day daddy's going to be playing with us and daddy's going to play house with us and daddy's going to build a fort with us and daddy's going to take us bike riding and daddy's going to go down to the creek with us and he's going to catch crawfish with us and then daddy's going to have lunch and we're all going to cook something together with daddy and, and then also on top of all this wonderful being with daddy, every time he comes back, he brings us the most wonderful presents. We just can't wait to see what those are going to be. Then, if you hear Daddy's coming back, you just can't wait till Daddy gets there because it's going to affect everything about your life, right? That's what it is for creation. <laughs> you might say it's going to affect everything about creation when we come. Notice what it says in verse 21 then. Creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. We don't have time to deal with that phrase, but... It obtains the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The creation obtains the freedom that we enjoy. When we are glorified in Christ and we enter into this new bodies of ours, the whole creation enters into that freedom and that glory with us. You see, we are so tied to creation... Whatever happens to us happens to creation. If God is going to redeem creation, he must redeem us. And if he redeems us, creation certainly will be redeemed. And so his resurrection has cosmic consequences. His resurrection meant the ultimate resurrection of all things. And that's the gospel that we proclaim. It was interesting to hear that Julian Trevidian, who's the pastor now at Coral Ridge, and giving his testimony at one of Jeremy Lellick's uh, conferences, said that when he was 16 years old, he left the church. He was the grandson of Billy Graham. He said he left the church and basically went clubbing in Miami for several years at 16 years old. He said, one of the most critical things in my abandonment of the church at that time was hearing or believing that heaven was floating around in the ether one day. And if you're really good, you get a harp. Okay? <laughs> and he said, it seemed to go against everything that I was as a human being. I, I couldn't relate to it. it. It wasn't heaven to me. It's like... So, when he said part of how God drew me back to himself was learning that the new heavens and the new earth 
are a reality, that God will restore our bodies and will restore this earth. He said, finally, a heaven I could sink my teeth into. And brothers and sisters, that is the salvation we proclaim to this world. All things will be reconciled. All things are important to God. He made this world and he will not lose this world. He will recover this world for his glory. And his people that were meant to dwell in this place for his glory, they will dwell in this place. They will rule things for his glory. They will be reconciled in love to one another and to God. Let us pray. Lord, we praise you that we have such a Christ, such a Christ who is the image of the invisible God, such a Christ who is head over us, your church, such a Christ who will be preeminent, who is the one who gives us life as the beginning and firstborn, who is the one that will reconcile all things to himself. Oh, Lord, we praise you and honor you that we are part of this eternal destiny. We have been caught up in this glorious salvation in Christ, that you are ours, Lord, and we belong to you forever. May we proclaim with eagerness this salvation, and may we feast upon it ourselves, even at this table which proclaims uh, your death until you come and proclaims that glorious marriage feast of the Lamb that we will enjoy forever and ever in your presence. Amen.